0: Gold standard of paranormal
1: radio. And
0: now, here's Gene
1: Steinberg. In recent weeks, we've had some really fascinating guests on the paranormal that focus on not just a lot of investigations, but taking a measured, skeptical approach. They don't take everything that comes down the pike, they don't accept every claim. In that tradition, This week, Randall and I are proud to bring on Sharon A. Hill, a geologist, who's author of a book called Scientifical Americans, The Culture of Amateur Paranormal Researchers. And I notice here, she's written for both the Skeptical Inquirer and Fortean Times. So, Sharon, that means you kind of like straddling both ends of the picture here?
2: That's exactly right.
1: So why? What got you interested in the subjects?
2: Well, like lots of people, I've been interested in it since I was a kid, since I can remember picking up books in the library. It was always about ghosts or monsters or UFOs or psychic powers, things like that. And, um, you know, you go to college, you get a science degree and those things kind of fall to the background for a while while you're busy doing other things, but then I had some time and a different perspective on the world and I started looking back into the subjects again. I still enjoy the the stories that people tell and I don't disbelieve everything, but I I understand that there is a different method we could apply to the evidence now. So that's that's what I try to do.
3: That must be pretty tough for you sometimes being caught right in the middle between the the scientific community and the uh what the scientific community would call the the woo factor
2: it is it's very much so in fact to the point where i'm not sure i have a tribe i still am a consultant for the committee for skeptical inquiry i don't do anything in that capacity and i did work even for the james randy randy educational foundation for a while and was very involved in the skeptical community i've since moved away from that uh, for various reasons uh, but yet if I go to paranormal conventions or you know places where people are are not so critical they're just there to tell their stories and they have a different worldview uh, it, it is difficult to take everything You can't take it at face value I, I can I can see where things are sort of not quite right and I just sort of have to step back and I, I'm very much an observer now I like to go to these conferences and, and observe and listen I think right now I see a much broader picture than most people see because I've looked at both sides.
1: Before we go on, do you see any reality in the other side, the believer side, anything at all?
2: Oh, it's complicated. Um, I look a lot into folklore and why people believe. And I, I really do find that there are these core experiences that all humans have. And I do believe that everybody sort of perceives the world in a different way. And some people may perceive it in an entirely different way than another person. And I'm, I'm not going to say that your very special experience didn't happen. I wasn't there. I didn't experience it. Maybe you have different faculties. You have different degrees of senses than I have. I don't know that. And I certainly wouldn't say that uh, don't exist because people have experiences so there is a ghost experience and people have ghostly episodes and people have bigfoot experiences i don't know if what they say they are their interpretation is correct but i'm not going to discount their very unique and usually highly emotional experience that they have had
3: that's really fair minded and it's one of the reasons i was really hoping to get you on to talk about it because some of the skeptics on the far end of the spectrum they would simply deny The experience itself is anything but sheer nonsense. And you seem to at least give some credit to the witness who has had an experience. They may not know how to explain it, and especially in scientific terms, but to them it was real. Mm -hmm. And it was something unusual. And they deserve to have an audience for that if it's of concern to them.
2: I think when I, when I started writing the book and took a look at amateur paranormal researchers, the first thing I realized was how passionate they are. And they've usually had an experience that has prompted them to do this. And they're not stupid and they're not crazy. And they're really trying hard to make sense of what happened to them or to figure out what is going on in the world. And to discount the huge uh, portion of the population that has some sort of paranormal belief, I think is ridiculous. Uh, We shouldn't ignore that, we shouldn't dismiss it. It's very interesting, no matter what has happened to them, no matter what the explanation, and I'm sure that there's there's a panoply of explanations that that probably happened to people, can't even list them all, but they've really been impacted in their life and they take that experience with them often through their whole entire life. So it really is worth paying attention to. That is kind of where I got away from the skeptical community because they thought this was a stupid thing to look at. They thought it was not worthwhile to look at. And I do.
1: Okay, so we see people are having experiences that they feel are genuine. I think you agree with me that when it comes to UFOs, 90 or 95% of what we see and presume to be unidentified can be explained conventionally. where Things get difficult is that remaining residue, five or ten percent, that we don't really have a clue about. Obviously, there are people who think they're extraterrestrial, and maybe that's possible. But one of the viewpoints expressed very commonly on the Paracast is there are lots of interesting possibilities that should be debated, but there is no smoking gun. You know, before I pass this mortal fiber or coil or whatever, we may learn that it was all conventional, test aircraft or something. We may learn E.T. is here. We may learn it's a collective unconscious action. Mm-hmm. And the same thing about other phenomena.
2: Right. And and perhaps we don't even have the information to make those judgments. And we never will because the the moment has passed to gather that information. And we just don't know. You were saying something, Randall?
3: Uh, well, I, I heard you cut in there. So I thought, well, no, will let you go ahead, Gene. I'd like to know also, when we look at that, you're focusing this book on
1: the amateur researchers, amateur paranormal researchers. I'm assuming then that you're referring to people who don't get paid for it. What about people who write books and give lectures? Aren't they professional in as much as they receive money for it? Or do you require scientific credentials?
2: Really, my definition was extremely broad. This was the the people that um, do this voluntarily. Most of the time, they don't get paid. They don't get compensated. They're not under the auspices of any organization other than the one that they've formed themselves. It's very a very grassroots effort to form a group of people who want to go out and do this, this thing. They usually focus on mysteries, you know, paranormal, that would be not only ghost hunters and people who investigate hauntings, but also ufologists and cryptozoologists and people who just investigate normal like 40 and phenomenon or psychic phenomenon. But the majority of them, and I, I did count them back in 2010 in the U.S., and there were well over 2,000 at the time, of these groups. I focused on the group, not necessarily ind- individual because that number is always in flux. So is the group, but the, the individuals were, were hard for me to study, but the groups were available online. And that's how these groups put themselves out to the world, mostly is through word of mouth on the internet, now through social media. So they went directly to the public. And when I looked at them, they didn't have any science background. Almost none of them said that they had any science background. So they were they were strictly amateurs in that sense, but amateur meaning, you know, one who loves. This is what they love to do. And so that's that's the way you should take that definition.
1: Also, I guess a hobby. But what about an organization like MUFON that has a professional management staff that's paid a salary? They go through formal training, sometimes kind of training of individual investigators. And they do have advisors and members who do have various levels of scientific Achievements. Now we can go into more of that in a moment. We want to continue our discussion, Randall and I, with Sharon A. Hill. The book is Scientifical Americans Culture of Amateur Paranormal Researchers. More to come.
3: You're in the Paracast.
1: We also have swag. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour.
4: Heart-related health problems affect millions of people each year. Maybe you're one of the many who suffer from issues related to angina pain, high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, unbalanced cholesterol, irregular heartbeat, or clogged arteries. There is a solution that doesn't involve expensive prescription drugs that only mask the problem and leave you with horrible side effects. If you are ready to live your life free of sickness, pain, and fear, live your life with Increased vitality, energy, and youthfulness, and experience your body healing itself. Then you're ready for Heart and Body Extract from Healthy Hearts Club. Here is what one satisfied customer had to say about Heart and Body Extract regarding his angina pain.
5: I haven't had an angina pain since I've been on it. The heart and body extract is just so great. I thank God that I was led to this product that's doing so much for me, and that can do so much for other people.
4: Call to order your two-month supply of heart and body extract today. Call one 866 Six two nine five five three zero five, or go to hbextract.com.
6: I'm David Hall, founder of Diamond Gusset, where we're proud of our 100% grown and sewn American made jeans. Whether you're out for dinner, working on the farm, or on the road, Diamond Gusset Jeans offers a full spectrum of styles and sizes for any occasion. To find yours, visit gusset.com. That's G U S S E T.com. Our loyal customers enable us to continue sponsoring Liberty media outlets like the one you're listening to. In Liberty, David Hall, Diamond Gusset Jean Company.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Somebody wrote on the forums, and they write wacky things on the forums, and sometimes really smart things, in fact, most of the time, suggesting because I would talk about... Randall's use of a low end echo chamber as opposed to what we can do in post production. That by r- referring to it more than once, I must be suffer from a high level degree of autism. I will let that stand. You can decide what you think about it. In the meantime, our guest Sharon Hill is here and she doesn't want to hear about that stuff. So I asked her about an organization like Mufun that has thousands of members, a professionally paid staff. Scientific advisors of different types. Where do you rate them?
2: The UFO category was very difficult. There were majority of these amateur groups focused on ghosts and hauntings. Uh the, the vast majority, something like uh 87% of them I counted, were ghost specific. There were many who were just paranormal, they did everything. There was about 3.5% that were cryptozoologist-centric, mostly Bigfoot researchers. And then there were only two groups that focused strictly on UFOs, and one of those was MUFON. So it's a very unique situation because it's huge and because it's strange because it has individual chapters that have sort of their own minds in, in some cases, and yet they recruit the amateurs to do this. And by far, they were the only organization that had any sort of organization to it where they recruited people, and they had some sort of system, they had a database, they had a training manual, they had a test, they had a convention. They were by far the most organized when it came to having investigators go out and do this type of, of research and, and, and respond to cases. So they were definitely unique, but they only counted as one. So,
3: How about QFOS? That's uh, one that was started by Jay Allen Heineck who had genuine scientific credentials. He's a fellow at the Yerkes Observatory and worked with the Air Force in Project Blue Book. And yeah, they're ta- still around.
2: Right. I talk about the history of UFO groups in the book. Uh, I go through the history of each one of these fields from the time that they became sort of popular and the the history of the groups that had been formed and, and when they started to become researched. I, I went through all those the heyday of UFO research is, is past compared to the ghost hunters, right?
1: Did you go into the early days when we had APRO and yes. NICAP and CSI and Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York? It
2: was, it was fantastic because those were the days of newsletters and 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 po- physical bulletin boards where you would post meeting announcements. And it's just so funny to see how the Internet took over for all that in, in the late 90s, where... Then you started to become digital, and it was much easier to meet up with people of like minds. And that's also what helped these other groups to collect individuals and and expand so tremendously. Was the internet was such a boon? I think maybe UFOs uh, for amateur researchers missed that opportunity, but yet they they had their own blossoming of, of interest thanks to the internet as well.
3: One of the things that I maintain when it comes to ufology is that it doesn't belong in the sciences. It isn't a science, and it's not well-suited to the sciences. I don't think it can ever be a science unto itself. And I'll say that right up front to people. Our group has about 2,000 members in 22 countries, and it's informal. Randall, it's you should explain what your group is as opposed to the show. Right. That's USI. It's the group that I'm with. and. The show here is the Paracast, and I'm doing the co-host, but the group that I'm with is called USI, Ufology Society International. Now, some of our people have some scientific credentials, quite a few don't. It's informal, but the point I was getting at is what you just described is that ufology has a huge cultural aspect to it. To chop that cultural aspect out of it, I think would be doing a disservice to the field. Therefore, it it can't really be put into the scientific method. There's certain aspects of it that might be okay with the scientific method, but my position is that, well, if we get that sort of evidence, we should be handing it off at arm's length to actual accredited trained scientists who can study it on their own terms and come Mm -hmm. to their own conclusions.
2: Well, that's great, and and I would fully support that, that viewpoint. What I did in the book was I counted how many of these groups actually used the term scientific, and then what they meant by that. Actually, actually, what they went and did in their their activities that was judged as scientific, was it scientific or not? And about half of them didn't. Half of them didn't even say anything. Or they, a few of them just discounted it. They went purely with psychic methods or religious methods, not not anything um, in in a, a rational process of of investigation. But I don't think you have to be scientific. That's that's sort of the ending of the book. I don't. I think you should stop pretending to be scientific. You can be reasonable. You can be rational in thinking about what the problem is and how you can possibly look at it and and maybe. Uh, gain more additional information towards it. And I, I don't like when people say that they're being scientific, when they're really not. They're faking it. They're, they're pretending to play scientists. I don't think you need to do that. You can do really good research without pretending to be a scientist. You can um, collect the data, make sure it's good collection. You can share it with others. You, the approach, I think, for ufology in particular, it, to me, this is my opinion. The question should be, okay, somebody saw something in the sky or, or had, an, uh, saw, had some sort of experience uh, near ground or on the ground. What, if anything, happened there? Instead of what a lot of ghost hunters do by saying, uh, we're going to go out and look for paranormal evidence, which is a completely different thing. My aspect is, I want to find out what happened to these people and, and describe their experience. Maybe there's a pattern here. Maybe we could start to see something interesting if we study the data, but not make those, not jump to those conclusions about, I know what happened here and I'm going to try to prove the paranormal.
3: Right. And I think if you have evidence that is measurable, then by definition, it isn't paranormal. Right. There's, uh, well, there's sort of a casual paranormal, and then there's a more stricter definition. When the casual sort of has everything fall into it, UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, and so on, the more stricter definition has, says that it's beyond the measure of science altogether. In other words, it doesn't matter how long our science evolves, it's never going to have the tools or the ability to be able to properly measure it. So say something like a belief in in uh, the supernatural as opposed to something like a UFO, which hypothetically, if there are alien visitors to planet Earth, they should be fully measurable and we should be able to find out where they come from. So they would fall into the natural, whereas some things fall outside it. And no matter how long it we're around, we'll, we'll just never get the answers. I'll tell you what,
1: let's do our break and then we'll get back to Sharon Hill to respond to randall's question so once again our guest is sharon a hill she's a geologist by trade author of a book called scientifical americans all right and we'll talk about the culture of paranormal researchers and things like that and also the response to randall's question you're in
3: the (laughs) paracast
10: For USA Radio News, I'm Wendy King. The FBI is working through the weekend with agents looking into sexual misconduct allegations made against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. An anonymous source says the Bureau will investigate claims that were made by his former Yale classmate Deborah Ramirez, which expands the investigation beyond those made by Christine Blasey Ford. President Trump spoke to reporters at the White House before leaving for a rally in West Virginia.
11: I would expect it's going to turn out very well for the judge.
10: Speaking in Austin, Texas, House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi says Kavanaugh could have two jobs in jeopardy now. If he is not telling the truth to Congress or to the FBI, then he's not fit not only to be on the Supreme Court, but to be on the court that he's on right now. Kavanaugh denies the claim. He's alleged that Democrats, including the Clintons, are out to get him. You're listening to USA Radio News.
6: Hi, this is Joshua P. Warren, author of The Poor Man's Paranormal. And you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So we asked a question of Sharon at the end of the last segment. What's your response?
2: I'm so glad you asked that because... In the book, I describe what I think is the difference between paranormal and supernatural. And I think that there's a difference. I think with the paranormal, we're outside what we know of science or what we perceive as normal or what everybody sort of takes as established. Something else has happened beyond that. We don't quite understand. It doesn't fit into what we know. But it doesn't mean it won't fit into what we know eventually. It doesn't mean it can't be studied. It means that eventually we may get there. And where I see the supernatural is beyond nature, so beyond natural laws. So things like demons and angels and magic and powers that don't conform to the laws of nature. We can't study those because we have to use the laws of nature as boundaries. If we don't have any boundaries, we can't study them because we, we can't predict them at all and it's not science. So the supernatural is outside of science completely. The paranormal could be it's it's on the edge, but we might get there.
3: Right, it's potentially right. possible to be able to if we say say if we had a UFO land, we could measure it, weigh it, study it. Presumably with the tools that we have nowadays, we could analyze its materials all the way down to the atomic level. I mean, there's nothing about it we couldn't measure, study and find out about other than perhaps where it came from we might need to get some scientists on board and actually take a trip to wherever it came from in order to verify that it came from beyond the boundaries and constructs of known civilization which is how i look at the term alien it doesn't necessarily mean et or extraterrestrial it seems like that's a reasonable hypothesis though in a loose sense not necessarily in a strict scientific sense
2: yeah, the thing about the study of UFOs, I think it's it's quite broad. I mean, are you talking about something that, that people are seeing in the sky or are you talking about alien visitations? I really don't like the survey questions that ask people, do you believe in UFOs? Because that's a really awful question. <laughs> What's belief got to do with it? And we've all seen something in the sky that we don't know what it is that was unidentified. It was ter- It's a terrible question. It, it, it invokes uh, an unanswered question of do you believe in alien visitation, which is not the same question. It's completely different. Or... Or do you believe in aliens in general? Because that's also a different question. It's it, Have they come to Earth is another different question. It, it tends to get all muddled together, which is a disservice. It
3: really is. But that's, I think, part of the problem of the field itself being in it for as long as I have, is that there's no consensus even among people in the field as to what the terminology means. So I've made a real concerted effort to trace back the etymology of the words, the history, the usage, and create a case for why certain words mean what they do. But most people don't do that. When you hear the word UFO, they say, oh, well, that literally means unidentified flying object, which it doesn't, not in any sense of the term. Not every acronym means the literal interpretation of what the words that make up the acronym mean like radar you know radio detection and ranging we it doesn't necessarily mean that we're out on the range detecting radios but people use that term ufo in a way that really causes more confusion than it should i think it was jacques valley said that he couldn't think of a word that was more treacherous than the term ufo
2: Yeah. And unfortunately, language just does its own thing when released into culture and we we can't control it as much as I would like to do that, too. When people say, oh, it's paranormal. No, doesn't necessarily mean it's paranormal. Have you exhausted all the normal? Can you really say it's paranormal? You haven't actually figured out. Maybe you never will. All the possible normal things. So the best you can say is, I don't know what this is. I don't know what happened here. But unfortunately, it's been used in that colloquial sense, and people have an idea of what it's supposed to mean.
3: Absolutely. So maybe that's what we should do is talk a little bit about some of the terms when you use the term scientifical as opposed to science. So for you, what does science mean? What does that term mean to you?
2: Science is is pretty broad. And again, people think of it as, as something that is probably not quite accurate. But science is a process, first and foremost, a method of how we discover knowledge. And that knowledge is usually pretty reliable because of the methods that go into gaining it. One of the reliable ways that we have of getting knowledge, although through time it can change depending upon new evidence. The second thing is it's the community of people who do that work it's what they do when they share the work with each other they work together they publish they they come to conferences they go they come together and they share their data and they share their ideas and they fight about it and then the third thing is that body of knowledge is also the science everything that we know that has has come from that community and that method is a science the so science has a that three-pronged meaning to it when you're talking about oh science does this well I'm not sure what that means because are you talking about the community or are you talking about the body of knowledge or are you talking about the process? And I think people really misunderstand the process because they're never really taught what real science is like. The scientific method, it doesn't work like a cookbook. The way people are taught in in, in school, you know, in your primary science classes, it doesn't quite work like that. The world is not that simple. And depending upon the field, it's a little bit different. So I try to explain science in that three-pronged way so people to understand that it's it's not just one monolithic thing. It's it's pretty complicated and it involves many people.
3: That's really a good way to describe it. It's one of the things that I found out myself looking into it, trying to say, okay, well, if we're not going to call ufology a science, then what are we going to call it? And how could we look at it from a serious perspective? And I've determined that I think that we could put it in an academic sense not a scientific sense they'd probably be better off in the the humanities for example i mean consider a film like close encounters of the third kind i believe that's been actually inducted into uh the one of the cultural libraries that you've got down there in the states you have to excuse me i don't remember the exact name but it's got a it's it's got status now in american culture and it's part of ufology but there's no way that you're going to be able to take that and people's opinions about it and their experiences watching it and and put that into the scientific method. It's just beyond that ability. And yet it's still a very important part of the subject as a whole.
2: I think a lot of these paranormal topics are multidisciplinary, just like that.
1: I think here we should also consider here the use of the word culture, and you're talking, I guess, when you talk about the culture of a movement involving paranormal researchers, and I'd like you to define that further. Does that mean that certain types of people get involved in this, or is it a very loose culture where all sorts of people from different backgrounds are attracted? Is there the typical UFO researcher, a composite UFO researcher, a composite ghost hunter a composite person who looks for Bigfoot?
2: Well, I think you can see similarities across uh, the different fields. Um, some are across all the fields, and some are just unique to certain fields. Like cryptozoology is primarily men, even more so than, than ufology, uh, and ghost hunters is more egalitarian. It's, it's also just probably just as many women, which is a, a unique feature in, in that aspect. Um, but I, I only studied the groups. I didn't really study the individuals, but I see a lot of the individuals uh, at play and, and online and interacting with each other and, and talking about these subjects. And you could sort of see these patterns of, of where they come from. Uh, for the most part, you know, they're, they're not college educated in science. They may have some sort of degree, but uh, they don't really understand the concept of science. But they understand that there's a value to being scientific or saying that you're scientific and that is actually a thread in our culture our american culture our western culture our modern culture values science so culture being a group of people everything they do and stuff that goes into forming their beliefs and then what they produce uh, to feed back into the system of exchanges
1: let's do our break here I'm going to go back because I want to amplify on that, Sharon. We've got Sharon, Gene, and Randall. You're in. The
3: Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
15: Ever wonder how Bitcoin and Ethereum were created? Vercel Media has helped hundreds of companies and individuals make their own cryptocurrency. Decentralized blockchain solutions are making the world more transparent and giving power back to the people. Vercel Media has helped companies raise tens of millions in the past year alone, structuring and marketing ICOs to the thirsty crypto public worldwide. Don't miss the cryptocurrency revolution. Visit VercelMedia.com. V-E-R-C-E-L Media.com.
17: Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of
1: paranormal radio. Sharon A. Hill joins us, and we're talking about the culture, focusing now on UFO researchers, paranormal researchers in general, ghost hunters, cryptozoologists. Now, you mentioned to me In terms of the breakdown, the gender breakdown, that much more males are interested in looking for Bigfoot than females. Of course, we know our good friend Lauren Coleman, for example. Is there a reason for that?
2: I'm sure there is maybe more than one reason. I'm not sure what it is. I personally have not found the field to be very female-friendly. Uh, in various ways, it's the, the one place that I've been most harassed <laughs> online. Oh, um, oh, boy. Yeah, and it's some pretty nasty stuff. And I, I wouldn't say that it's too bad, but there have been incidents where it's been very bad. It's not that I would be afraid to, to go to these meetups or, or to engage with these people, but it, it is sort of an Internet thing. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I have not seen the same with the ghost hunters or the ufologists. Uh, the, you go to a UFO convention and sure, it's lots of older white guys there, uh, but I still can interact with them just fine. I, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, same with the ghost hunters. It's very diverse there. Even with cryptozoology, I'd have to say, I'm, go- I'm going to qualify my, my statement because I have been to a cryptozoology convention not too long ago where there was a lot of young people. So there are some people coming in there. There were quite a number of young women. They may have a different view of cryptozoology than people like Lauren Coleman. They're not as interested necessarily in the ideas of like Bernard Hoovelman's or, or, you know, uh, Roy Mackle. They might not know who those people are, but they're interested in the idea of of these creatures being out there. So maybe there's a shift to a younger generation in that field. And I think that that's good to see.
1: One of the concerns I've seen about UFOs in general is when I've gone to these conventions, and of course we have the International UFO Conference in the Phoenix area, and that is most of the people I encounter are older people. I don't see that many young people. Yeah, of course, if you have something like a Comic-Con, where it gets 150,000 people, and it's a mixture of all age groups looking for their favorite movie TV stars and comic book artists and writers and maybe because of the fact that it has an entertainment aspect attracts a lot more people and i've wondered in general we've talked about it on the powercast because both randall and i are a little older amongst the crowd and probably typical of the age of people who go to these conventions you mentioned younger people coming to various events is this a factor of UFOs playing themselves out or what?
2: I wonder. Um, I don't know. I, I couldn't really say. UFOs are not my strong point. I, I not to say anything disparaging, but it was just never my interest. Space in general was never my interest. I was more interested on the you know in 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 the Earth and the rocks on the Earth than space. And and I always had an interest in biology, so that's why cryptozoology is is fascinating to me. So I, I can't really say, but to me. I don't see a whole lot of new things just as an outside observer looking what's coming out of the the UFO community. It seems like a lot of stuff has, you're traveling over the same ground. And I do, however, see, I don't know if if there was a, a turnoff, like something just branched off into UFOs being under a very big paranormal umbrella. So when you're talking about things like Skinwalker Ranch or uh we have a, a place here in pennsylvania called chestnut ridge where it's an area of high strangeness and it involves ufos and involves cryptids and involves paranormal phenomena of all types and i see that thread of ufology going in, in a different direction and that is attracting more younger people into it because it's a very broad scope and it feels kind of new and exciting does that make any sense
3: oh it makes perfect sense the longer that i i look at the subject matter and this may be my own personal bias the more i start to see how a lot of the various aspects of the paranormal can connect in with ufology in a way that seems rational to me if in other words i look for a way to say well okay so someone sees a ufo and it seems to change shape or it disappears well how is that possible and then i think well We're working on active camouflage and holographic technology. So why shouldn't they be able to do that? Or perhaps they've got active camouflage for their body armor or something like that, where they can make actually themselves appear to be some other kind of a creature. At least that's a a way of going, well, there's a technology that hypothetically could explain that rather than having to invoke alternate dimensions or... Things that are even further out on the Occam's razor scale, if you know what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So, if we go back to the science, how many of these groups, when you say, "Well, they don't really know what the science, the principles of science are," like it, you know, I would say, "Well, you know, a systematic endeavor to build an organized knowledge, uh, form testable explanations and predictions, that sort of thing." I'm not a scientist, but that seems to be one of the
2: cornerstones. Right. Uh, scientific method, but it's a sticky definition. But yes, those those factors come into play. But the thing that I used to judge how scientific uh, these groups actually were was by using Merton's norms. Robert Merton was a sociologist of science, and he looked at the culture of scientists and, and how they functioned. So we're back to this cultural idea again, the culture of science and um he had some features norms ethics uh, ethos he called them and they were communalism universalism disinterestedness skepticism and uh, one he tacked on at the end was originality so maybe we could talk about how each one of those involves the amateur paranormal researchers
3: right i think in a lot of cases those all apply well but one of the things that i would point out i or at least that i've noticed Is that when you're talking about the communal aspect, most scientists who are accredited, they come from an educational institution that has been accredited to teach some science. And therefore, there seems to be an assumption, well, that if they go to school that teaches science and it's assumed assumed that what you're doing there is science and that anything else isn't science. And in a way, I think maybe science has been kind of hijacked by the academic elite and people in these institutions because if we're just looking at the history of the word and where it comes from we're talking about discerning knowledge investigation truth and using something like critical thinking to establish what that is
2: all those norms take into account what you just said communalism means you know you're sharing info you're being public with all your data, you're sharing, it. it's, it's always out there if for anybody to, to look at. Universalism means that uh, the social context is unimportant, and and no observer is privileged. Disinterestedness, that's obvious. There's 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 no investing in, in the, the outcome. You're not biased. Skepticism involves the critical thinking that you were talking about, the peer review, the dialogue, the debate, and originality means you build on what you've already learned and you don't know, keep reinventing the wheel. So those were the things that that the ethos of the culture and built into that is sort of the scientific method and how we how we work on it.
3: But isn't that kind of an ideal though, because when is, you really right. look at how science works, well, of course, uh, you've got industrial secrets, you've got labs that are got high security where nobody gets to know what's going on in there.
2: Right. So, uh, yeah, that's right. And, and you've got you certainly have some bias too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's very difficult to overcome. So yeah, I mean, there's going to be there's going to be good and bad on the scale. Some stuff is not going to come out to actually be good science.
3: And then I think on the skeptical side, I've I mean, I've been literally brought to tears by the people of the former James Randi Foundation website forum, which actually distanced itself from the foundation itself because it had become so I'll just use the word cyberbullies. They became very mean to people.
2: Actually, and, it was the other uh, way around. The, the foundation distances itself from the form. Exactly. It cut the tie. Yeah,
3: That's right. Yes, that's exactly what I meant. And good for them for doing it, because you know, I went there searching to try to cooperate with some skeptics, and I found a couple who were really good, and I still get their newsletters and go through them, and they come up with some really good stuff about what possible explanations there are for the various phenomena but 90 percent of the time i was getting heckled on or harassed and maybe kind of the same way that you experienced being harassed uh, by the the paranormal society let's
1: get into more of this the culture the cyber bullies the trolls more to come with Gene, Randall, and Sharon, you're in the
3: Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
0: Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So, of course, we've all confronted cyberbullies, trolls. I think that's more of a phenomenon. Sharon and Randall and I welcome your input more of a function of the way the online world works where people can be mostly anonymous and suddenly their keyboards or their touchscreens tap out things they'd never say to anyone in person.
2: That's so true. The part part of the research I did about the 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 impact of the Internet was a book by Clay Shirky called Here Comes Everybody. And I love that title because <laughs> literally that's what happened. Everybody is now coming at you through the screen and anybody could see what you're saying and respond to it immediately. And it's scary to, to write something and wonder how it's going to be taken. And I've had situations where I know I've come off the wrong way and people have taken it very literally and and skewered me for it. But then there are other times when I wrote a big long recent piece and people only hit on the parts that they wanted to pick on. So it's it's an incredibly difficult process to maneuver around the internet and come out clean.
3: Well, let's look at scientifical then. So we, I think we've defined pretty well, or at least got a Pretty good idea of what we're talking about when it comes to the science aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So then, what is scientifical? Are you talking synonymous with pseudoscience, or
2: there's a little bit of a difference? I mean, pseudoscience could be could be the uh, a different uh, way of looking at science. It's it's uh, a process and a community of, of pseudoscience that's just it's outside. Uh, science because it's got some problems with it but scientifical to me I, I came up with the word as I was looking at these people who were literally pretending to be scientists. they knew that the scientific viewpoint in our culture was highly valued that science has an authority that people uh, maybe their clients uh, for these paranormal groups would be impressed by the group being acting like they were scientists and and they did that in a number of ways. They used the jargon. They were very systematic in how they set up. They used gadgets. Sometimes they wrote reports and and they put it up online. They put up. They called their their information evidence and data. They used hypotheses and theories. They used big words like quantum and electronic and fields and electromagnetics and things like that. It's it's the iconic version of science. It's what the public who isn't they're not scientists. That's what they think science looks like. They think it's gadgets and technology and big words and hard to understand processes and things like that. So what these uh, air eggs, I call them just for short, uh, amateur research and investigation groups were doing was adopting that, that uh, activity uh, and pretending to be scientists. And I, I, I saw that distinctly that they were they were picking up these mannerisms in order to convince their their clients that they were professional, knowledgeable, serious.
3: So they were putting on the air of science yes, as opposed yes. to actually doing what we would recognize as genuine critical thinking or following any kind of method that would be uh, perceived by an accredited scientist as being genuinely scientific. They're That's also right. using it as a sales pitch, a talking yes. point, a bulleted point.
1: We're a scientific research organization. And yes. I suppose some, like QFOS and MUFON, can be put in that category because they do have scientists, although those who've listened to the podcast for a while know that we don't regard MUFON as an organization as opposed to individuals as scientific because they're really serving to evangelize The extraterrestrial theory, as far as I'm concerned.
2: And a lot of what these groups were doing was uh, they, they they were falling down at step one. They were saying, we're a scientific group. We use scientific methods. We are out to prove the paranormal. Right there, they've become completely unscientific because you've already got an agenda. You're already out to prove something instead of find out the answer. Which to me, science is about finding out the answer to a question. Pose a question, find the answer. These people already had their their question answered. It's paranormal. Let's go find whatever anomaly we can find and attribute it to our pet idea. And that bothered me as a scientist who I have to be licensed. I have to have ethics training. I have to conform to certain uh, standards. And I have gone through six years of schooling to get there. And for them to co-opt that to me was, it was frankly offensive.
1: Let me ask you a question here, since we talk about memes in terms of research, ghosts, God be spirits of the dead and UFOs or spaceships. How far did you go back in looking at this culture? Did you look at the way, for example, the UFO phenomenon has been modified over the years?
2: I did a little bit of that. Uh, I had to cover all the fields in the book. so. Uh, I I used some diverse sources from the the, old, the government reports and, and and Carl Sagan's conference on the uh, UFOs and, and back to you know Jim Mosley's work and stuff. And I, I I looked at a lot of different sources to see what what the field was 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 like back then, and I had one of my commenters. Note that some of my sources were really old. I, I should have probably used newer sources, but I thought that the old sources were pretty cool because they gave me an idea of, of what people thought of those groups way back then when they were first formed.
1: Now, I come out of that era. I started following UFOs when I was 11 years old. I read Donald Kehoe's book. I knew a lot of the people, as regular listeners to the podcast know, from that field. I actually, my first job, paid job, paid gig, was as a full-time managing editor for Jim Mosley's Saucer News back in the 1960s. So, you know, I go back there, and of course, I always welcome the look at Jim because he was one of the first guests on the show. When we (laughs) premiered in 2006, we had Jim Mosley and the late Brad Steiger as Mm -hmm. our guests at that particular point in time. Did you look at some of the crazy feuds that occurred, especially in the fifties and sixties?
2: Very, very tangentially, a, a little bit of that. Yeah, it, it was it just as a spectator, it was it's fascinating to read some of the stuff and and how the groups used to to interact or, or fight with each other. It was it was really uh, entertaining storytelling, I, I must say.
1: Of course, many of us were teenagers, and teenagers will argue, I think, more than adults. Some of them were faked, like, for example, Gray Barker and Jim Mosley adopted the posture of being enemies, even though they were very close friends. So Jim Mosley favored the Earth theory, which is that all or most UFOs were test aircraft or secret weapons, whereas Gray Barker said, no, that's E.T., and though when we look at it now... I tend to think Jim actually was onto something—that a fair amount of the early UFO sightings were the result of seeing secret aircraft or mm-hmm. test balloons or something.
2: Yeah, what I found is that people on the outside who aren't really well versed in the history and the, the current status of these fields. They have no idea what's going on. They have such a simplified view of what's going on. And if you just look inside a little bit, there is so much interesting and in-depth things. It's a, it's a very, very deep rabbit hole you could go down and just spend so much time looking at all the different aspects of these fields. Um, and I, really, I try to bring that out to people, people who may be my skeptical friends. This stuff is fascinating at so many levels. You really should be paying attention to this. It's amazing.
1: Now, when it comes to ghost hunting, I follow it and I realize a awful lot of people are interested in it. And the TV shows that focus on ghost hunting get, I guess, decent ratings more so than UFO hunting shows, of which there are very few. But I also worry here, what I worry about ghost hunting is it seems to be very limited. All we're looking for is spirits of the dead. Everything is framed in that context. Movies that cover ghosts. Frame the context of something from the other side intruding its way or accidentally being partly in the middle between the afterlife and our existence and therefore having unfinished things to do. That sort of thing. We've got more to come. Sharon Hill, Gene Steinberg, J. Randall Murphy, and Gene worrying why he never got a middle name. I never had a middle
3: name. You're in The Paracast.
1: Neighbors, we've made such a deal with HelloFresh, and it means that everyone listening to this show can receive $30 off your first week of deliveries. When you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code PARACAST30, you know, with HelloFresh, you can choose the delivery day that works best for you. They've got a wide variety of chef-curated recipes. They change weekly. And can you imagine me cooking Japanese panko chicken? It makes me feel like I'm a chef. It means also that you could actually Get your meal cooked in 30 minutes. For busy people, this is perfect. The simple recipes include step-by-step instructions so even I can figure it out. Go to HelloFresh.com. Use the offer code PARACAST30 to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Hellofresh.com.
19: Stocks and options trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors.
20: Hey guys, it's Scott Bauer here, CEO of Prosper Trading Academy. Are you looking for a super hot stock tip? Here at Prosper, we are always looking for exciting opportunities in the markets. And right now, all my students are salivating over this stock we are watching. In fact, I've got this hot stock written down right here, and I'm about to text it to you for free. I just need to know where to send it. Simply text HOT to 48542, and I'll text it to you instantly. How do I know this stock is so hot? Well, I'm a former CBOE market maker for Amazon Options, former vice president of Goldman Sachs, and I have over 25 years of professional trading experience. I'm telling you, this stock is hot. But be warned, the stock may move soon, so you need to claim it before it does. Text HOT to 48542, and I'll text you this hot stock instantly. Text HOT to 48542, and I'll text you this hot Hot stock instantly. Message and data rates may apply.
5: Call for closure protection services now at 800-667-9035. 800-667-9035. That's 800-667-9035.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Now, because I suffer from high-level autism, they tell me, maybe that's because I never had a middle name. Oh, cool. We should hit the casinos. Well, they already think I do. You know, there's a couple of photos out there. Talk about culture. Sharon, I don't know if you'd be interested in this. There are a bunch of cyber bullies that have been after me for a number of years, since the early days of the PowerCast. Lately, they took photos from my son's Facebook page, where we were in Las Vegas, and my son paid for the hotel we drove there. We were in Las Vegas, like 2011. And there's a funny picture of me and Grayson and one of his young friends And both of us had our hands on Grayson's face doing a Vulcan mind probe. And another one, just a group picture with an Elvis impersonator. And on that basis, they assumed I had a gambling problem. I don't know where I started this. (laughs) 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 Anyway, anyway, I don't see as much of that in the UFO field these days, though. Not the fake fuse as much. Now, there, there, there where things are, are happening, of, it's in the cyber bully or troll range.
2: There's a lot of competition between ghost hunting groups. They sort of beat each other up sometimes uh, and because of territory. There's a lot of these groups. So there may be more than one of these groups in... Uh, an area. There's several in in certain states. I forget. I think that I counted something like 80 in in Ohio alone at the time in 2010. So they tend to bump into each other. So they have to maybe some of them get a different gimmick than another. They come up with a different way of presenting themselves with a specialty. Some become demonologists. Some become uh, related to uh, pet psychics or animals, animal ghosts, things like that. So they try to differentiate themselves. But yet they all want to outdo each other in their same general area
3: like ufology their groups cryptids or the and especially the ghost hunters they have a very wide spectrum from from what i would call the fringe people who are absolute believers in a particular religious theology And that's what it's about, and it has to do with demons and afterlives and purgatory and so on, to people who are very level-headed. We just interviewed in the last two shows uh, two groups out of Colorado who were very level-headed. Ufology is the same thing. We've got the tinfoil hat people who were way out there. Space brothers are coming to save us. And then we've got people who are more like myself that really value input from people like yourself the idea of critical thinking let's not try to pretend we're scientists and so on
2: yeah i i totally agree i think that um there there are there even are some uh, you know i use the term skeptical uh in, in the term of of uh, maybe not paranormal believers but but interested in the phenomenon skeptical groups who do these types of investigations there's very few but there are some and um there, there is definitely a range of good versus bad. I think when you're talking about the ghost hunters in particular, if you're talking about somebody who is invoking a lot of religious ideas into their investigations or uh, things like invoking uh, demons as a cause, that's extremely dangerous. Uh, they, they could actually make things worse for a person who feels that they're being tormented by some sort of spirit.
1: You know, there is a movement or a group of people... In the UFO field, who believe that UFOs are demonic. Right. In fact, my late uncle, my virtue of marriage, Lewis Kaplan, was part of a movement of Jews for Jesus. And the people in that movement, including a book author of a sci-fi novel, believed, again, that UFOs were from hell or demons, and that if you recite the Lord's Prayer, you'd get rid of them i guess
2: yeah i'm not surprised to hear that uh i, I mean there's something about ufos leads leads people to religion in some aspects uh in in various ways and i even think that some aspects of cryptozoology and bigfoot belief sort of resemble religions they have their their relics and their their uh, holy people who who you have to listen to everything that they say and there's a strange crossover there. I, there actually are some religious scholars who are studying paranormal groups and topics and, and, and their cultures because of these patterns that they see. And they're actually the, the book Paranormal America by Bader actually looks into the idea. Are, are people leaving organized religion and going to this very democratic way of picking beliefs that you want to subscribe to in these paranormal and new age fields without the, all the orthodoxy and rules? that are over there in in orthodox religion
1: did you go back to the ancient astronaut theories where some people ascribe events in the bible for example to the interaction or the arrival or presence of spaceships
2: i am very familiar with that idea uh uh it's often bad archaeology and anthropology going on there so there is It it is sort of a religious belief. I see things like, if if you remember long ago when Melba Ketchum did a Bigfoot study, and that turned into the concept that maybe this was DNA. Bigfoot was DNA. It was related to the Nephilim, the giants of old, out of the Bible. I mean, things just got so incredibly weird with regards to DNA and angels and giants and Cain and just. Uh, hybrid humans and angels it was bizarre
3: exactly and that's sort of a mythological side of ufology i think that we could catalog that if we we're looking at ufology from an academic perspective of how we would do that we say well that's just part of the mythology it's in the history we can look at that the same as someone say in religious studies group looks at various religious mythology and we say well that's what those particular beliefs were about, and th- that particular group group believes that, without necessarily believing in it ourselves mm-hmm. as ufologists. So that's where I think we could we could move into an academic perspective, as opposed to um, becoming a church of ufology type of thing,
2: mm.
3: like the Raelians or whatever that, yeah. that happens. You know,
2: ancient a- astronauts' idea is is rooted in in. Uh, you know, a long time ago, in in theosophy, and you know, ideas that that rose in the Victorian era. So, I, I it, there's there's a lot to to dig into there.
1: We had a fascinating episode here with Eric von Daniken, the author of Chariots of the Gods. We only got him for an hour or half the show, and David Halperin, who is a religious scholar specializing in Judaic studies, and it was interesting to watch. Von Daniken proposed certain things from the Bible that indicate the presence of extraterrestrials. And then, methodically, very quietly, very professionally, David picks apart those theories to show they have no value, that he's implying things in biblical passages that are not meant. of course, we can argue, till the cows come home, about biblical passages and how they've been modified over the years and what they might signify. But it was interesting here to get Von Daniken to the point where he said, well, that's just my theory. Which to me was almost a confession. Well, he made it all up. He's just a former hotel keeper who spent some time in prison, which he did, and came up with this thing that made him a very rich man. Sharon A. Hill, J. Randall Murphy, Gene Steinberg. You see, I'm putting myself last. I'm not an egomaniac except when I want to be one. You're in the
3: Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
10: For USA Radio News, I'm Wendy King. On Monday, the full Senate begins its consideration of Brett Kavanaugh's qualifications to become the next Supreme Court justice. Many senators are waiting to hear what the FBI says about it. Agents have less than a week to gather information on the sexual misconduct allegations against him. A source says the investigation will include claims made by Kavanaugh's former Yale classmate Deborah Ramirez it wasn't clear if the scope would be expanded beyond those made by Christine Blasey Ford. President Trump says he hopes this will pave the way for Kavanaugh's confirmation.
13: Having the FBI go out, do a thorough
14: investigation, whether it's three days or seven days, I think it's going to be less than a week. But having them do a thorough investigation, I actually think, will be a blessing in
10: disguise. You're listening to USA Radio News. your eligibility, and to learn how to use your private insurance or Medicare to minimize your out-of-pocket cost. Don't wait. If the deadline passes, you may lose your opportunity to get a pain-relieving back, neck, knee, or wrist brace at little or no cost to you.
6: 800-296-1261. 800-296-1261. 296 1261 That's 800-296-1261.
11: 1-800-919-5435. You could save up to 70%. That's 1-800-919-5435.
13: 1-800-919-5435. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So I assume, Sharon, you might have some further observations about that. The thing here is, are ancient astronauts, or just UFOs in general, signaling some kind of new religion because we're kind of disgusted with the ones we have? Certainly people have to be concerned. I'm not criticizing a religion, but some of the things that have happened in the Catholic Church, for example.
2: Right. I think there does tend to be this idea that people are leaving the traditional type religions because they are dissatisfied for whatever reason or another. And they're moving towards a more uh, democratic way of expressing their spirituality and their beliefs, uh, how they relate to the universe. It's not surprising. I mean, people are creative and and people go out and, and seek enlightenment. And I think that some of the these uh, Erics are actually doing that. They're seeking enlightenment. They're trying to find out some greater secrets or they've had experiences they need to explain. But then there's just the general commercialism where a lot of this stuff is commercialized. You're, you're, you actually make pilgrimage to these haunted places because you want to have this experience or you visit certain iconic locations because you want to see UFOs or have a UFO experience. Um, you go into the woods because you want to feel like you're in the domain of Bigfoot. So people are having these very spiritual experiences on their own terms.
3: Right. But then when it crosses over into what you were talking about before, where people are essentially pretending to or putting on the air of science and saying, well, we're, we're now the official scientific ghost hunting group and this is what we do. I think that that's where the danger is.
2: I saw a number of ghost hunting groups that invoked uh, both saying that they were scientific, use scientific methods, and then invoke all sorts of religious paraphernalia, dousing, charms, uh, invoke uh, demon protection. So they just use the spaghetti approach. They threw everything on the wall and, and see what stick for the clients to be impressed with them. And again, I think that that's disingenuous. They, they, they haven't really thought out what their goals are and and how to approach this in a reasonable way they're just trying anything maybe they've seen it on tv maybe they've heard it from somebody else or maybe they think it's just cool to give it a try uh it was very interesting to see a scientific group uh invoke uh psychics and religious paraphernalia it was just odd
3: then again we have somewhere uh being a geologist you might appreciate this we have one paranormal research group who talked about uh an investigation that they did i believe it was at a in or and they the claim there was that uh, the ground underneath was composed of a certain types of minerals and a, and had a composition that was causing or conducive to producing these spirits so what they did is they actually have a geologist on their that they in their group and people that they can consult with and they ended up getting he thought it was going to be the USGS, the US Geological Survey that would come and do it but he said it turned out to be i think the Department of Agriculture something like that but they had actual people come out and do sample soils and core testing to see what the ground was made of they did they looked at the geological survey maps they went to see if there was any truth to that claim and it turned out that there was nothing and his story was that they found no evidence that there of this geological formation and yet Oh, three or four months later, they went back and found that they people there were still telling the same stories about the.
2: (laughs) Oh, does this sound familiar to me? Yeah. I I had somebody inquire, can can you help me with the geologic conditions at the the Bobby Mackey location that's supposedly very uh, heavily haunted? Could you please look into the geology of that area? So I did. And I found there was nothing unusual there, although... I suppose there could be certain geological conditions that could cause problems with the foundation of a, a place, or there could be water leakage or something like that. And then I had a television producer contact me and say, we want to, we want you on camera to talk about the idea that there is limestone under this location, and we think that that's the cause of these potential hauntings going on. I, I said, before I come on camera and talk to you about this, and he didn't care whether I believed it or not. He just wanted me to talk about it stone tape idea that that's what it you know the goes back mm-hmm. to uh so i said you got to give me some time you got to give me the location and let me look at the geologic map so i did that because it was not in in my area it was in mississippi and so i i looked at the geologic map and i said there is no limestone here there is no quartz for miles there is just plain old silt and mudstone that has nothing to do with your spirits or ghosts not that even the stone tape theory has any value to it in my opinion at all we just can't find a way to take emotional energy and transmit it into a rock for storage it can't happen and then then you have to release it too and play it back like a videotape it's just completely implausible but yet it's still invoked because it sounds sciencey very few people actually do check the geology it's easy for them to say oh there's limestone underneath here that's the cause of this haunting if you go back to tc lethbridge Long, long ago, it was his idea that there's this psychic impression that's made into the the environment. Psychometry is the idea that there is a psychic impression made into the environment. It's a very, very old idea. I I actually have a site called spookygeology.com where I sort of write about these things.
3: Yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up, because that's quite interesting. Being a professional geologist, you've got a genuine scientific perspective. What do you think about the Hessdalen lights then? Do you you know what I'm talking about there? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in earth lights and the idea of earth lights. And they're so unique. And I actually think that there's something interesting going on there. And there's different aspects of them. But the Hessdalen lights was really interesting. And unfortunately, they're not as active as they used to be at the time when they were being studied. So if you go there now, you're not likely to see them. And the interpretation kind of doesn't suggest that there, there was anything going on there. But I still wonder about maybe we're seeing some sort of reaction with the maybe a, a, a fault area where there's stress on the rocks. And we're, we're, we're producing some sort of electromagnetic field or there's some sort of charge that's being generated. I did a, a quite a bit of work for, uh, with regards to earthquake lights which I find incredibly fascinating. And I also think that under very specific conditions, there may be something happening, but it's really, really hard to catch and study scientifically.
3: With Hesdalen, I know that they've got video, they've got footage, they've got lots of witnesses. And uh, one of their theories there is that there's a river running through the Hesdalen Valley with rocks rich in zinc and iron on one side and rich in copper on the other, and that in conjunction with the sulphurous water, the river itself creates kind of like a giant battery. Yeah. That does that sound too scientifical, or is? It, is
2: no, there- I actually I found that fascinating. Yeah, the idea that there was some sort of electrical charge being uh, generated. First, you have to make the charge, which is weird. That's something that doesn't normally happen. We don't normally see that. We see a very weak electrical flow through the crust of the earth that we can measure, but not something strong enough to produce that kind of a charge. And then it has to produce some sort of lights. What are those lights? How are they made? There was some idea that the, the lights were showing up on, on the tops of the mountains, which correlates well to the idea of a a coronal discharge of electricity. I don't think it's all that implausible. I just don't think we found out exactly the mechanism. And the same goes true for the earthquake light.
1: I'm going to ask you also about so-called window areas. I want to tell our listeners, we don't always book the guest in time to give you advance word, but this might be one of your fellow travelers, Sharon, Dr. Paul Kingsbury. He did a study on paranormal investigators yep, not a book a study and we'll have him on next week to talk Wonderful. about it. that's paul kingsbury next week on the paracast we're certainly finding an interesting range of guests very much you know kind of out of our safe zone here which is good we like to be out of our comfort zone and pursue other things one more announcement yes The new Paracast website is going to go up shortly. As with all web development, it always takes much longer than you expect, but Randall and I have seen it. You've already seen the changes to the YouTube channel with new artwork. I'm going to ask more about window areas, which I mentioned to Sharon Hill. With Gene and Randall, you're in the
22: Paracast.
18: wonder how Bitcoin and
15: Ethereum were created? Vercel Media has helped hundreds of companies and individuals make their own cryptocurrency. Decentralized blockchain solutions are making the world more transparent and giving power back to the people. Vercel Media has helped companies raise tens of millions in the past year alone, structuring and marketing ICOs to the thirsty crypto public worldwide. Don't miss the cryptocurrency revolution. Visit VercelMedia.com. V-E-R-C-E-L-Media.com.
3: Hi, it's Grant Cameron from presidentialufo.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So we have things like the Mysterious Valley. We have places where supposedly people see more weird stuff than anywhere else in the world talk about devil's triangle of course the legends about bermuda triangle and such and things like that did you get a chance to explore anything like that sharon
2: i'm interested in paranormal places so places that do seem to have this reputation of high strangeness events and things that go on there that you can go there and you're more likely to to have the experience there might be some merit to that. I, I I know. Let's let's take Gettysburg as an example. I'm I'm very familiar with the Gettysburg battlefield, and it's sort of considered the mecca of for ghost hunters. They love to go there because so much trauma happened there, and it's very emotional and just a concentrated amount of death happened. And if you go to Gettysburg, the geology of the location is Odd, And it lent lent itself to the way the battle was played out, but it also lends itself to the way that you perceive the space. There's these valleys, and and you feel sometimes uh, you're standing on a high place, but yet you could see where you could feel you're in a valley and you feel a bit trapped. The way that the geology works and the topography, it creates this eerie mist sometimes in the summer evening. And there's just a feeling of place there, this very strong sense of place. And then, of course, there are the legends and the stories that lend itself even more to that feeling. And then you feel anticipation for having those those types of experiences. So I think it's like it feeds into itself. If you expect something to happen because people have told you it will, plus the environment is kind of spooky and a bit unnerving, I think that that lends itself to, to those places having that reputation.
3: Continuing on uh, the, ge- the spooky geology theme then. When we were talking about, well, there could be something to do with these earth lights and earthquake lights, and that there could be a, a certain kind of an EM buildup, have you heard of the work of Michael Persinger? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that?
2: I don't think the science was very good. The ideas were highly interesting. Uh, he was a neuroscientist, so he was mainly interested in how the, these, these fields might affect the brain. And for sure, they do. Unfortunately, I don't know if you can translate the results from the laboratory out into the real world, which is far more complicated, and the fields aren't necessarily as strong as what you can generate in the lab to have this sense of presence or this feeling that you're out of your body or something weird is happening. The technonic strain theory—I'm—I'm familiar with it. Didn't really pan out. That was many years ago, where he proposed that, and nothing really happened to it. However, that doesn't mean that in seismically active areas, things aren't really weird sometimes. It the the there are documented emissions of radon gas in places or you know funny smells and strange booming noises in places where they don't measure earthquakes, but you hear these big booms constantly. It's because the earthquakes are so shallow they don't shake the ground. The energy comes up and makes this sound. So you have places like moodus Connecticut, where there's moodus noises and the natives Thought that that place was haunted by bad spirits because of all these bad noises all the time. So I think that that plays into it sometimes. In cases, I, th- I think the geology may have an effect.
3: How about ooparts out of place artifacts? You know where someone says they yes. found a you know like a platinum fastener in a coal mine that's that's millions of years old.
2: I'm very familiar with this because people have brought me things that supposedly are alien bones or meteorites, uh, and they're, they're not, <laughs> they're not those things. Uh, I have uh, seen many stories that come out in the tabloids where there are things buried in, in rock that look like machinery buried in rock. Well, you know what? Sometimes drill bits break off into the rock and it looks like it's been embedded there, but it's it's really that it was very natural happening. It's normal that that happens sometimes. And the funniest things. Are well concretions, iron concretions, are 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 very often called uh, uparts, the Clerksdorf spears, things like that, because they're weird looking and they look like they were man made, but that was just nature forming this uh, spherical shape in the rock, and you come across them and they look bizarre, and. Um, uh, the idea of, of frogs being stuck in rocks, I find fascinating. I think that that's amazing. It's very Fordian <laughs> idea of, of, of the toad in, in the stone. Um, I don't know how reliable those stories were. Maybe there's a grain of truth to it. Maybe it was a mud ball. Uh, people thought it was a rock. People tend to judge the age of things uh, mistakenly. On my spooky geology site, I have the story about the uh, London hammer. Where people actually found a hammer embedded in rock. Well, what happened was that the limonite concretion that formed around the hammer happened in just you know a couple decades. It didn't take very long for that stuff to settle and harden up into rock. And there you have something that looks like it's embedded in rock. So I think there's a couple interesting explanations for this. And you kind of have to dig into it to literally dig into it to try to find out what those are.
3: Right. Yes, exactly. Um, speaking of spheres, how about the stone spheres in Costa Rica? Are we talking concretions again or some combination of, uh, do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I'm not sure. I know exactly what you mean. But often these concretions can get extremely large.
3: Right. These, well, there's about 300 of them. The largest about 16 tons. Some of them are eight feet in diameter, and they're very spherical in shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, often they begin as igneous or sedimentary rock, right. sometimes as a concretion, like you were saying, from what I could tell, and and then refined in shape by people using hand tools.
2: Oh, They're g- that's, giving that's, it that's, a little help, huh?
3: Yeah, that, yeah, and so that that's all I was able to find out about them, but I was wondering if you might have known a little more.
2: Concretions are kind of weird. Uh, we don't really learn about them in in normal course of study other than here they are they're made of iron they're very heavy they end up being spherical or sort of uh, strange shapes and people mistake them for something that they're not i have a great iron concretion that looks like an alien head it's marvelous <laughs>
3: <laughs> perfect how about what they call the uh, cart tracks in it's uh i think it's some island over in the mediterranean where they there's these grooves in the stone that Go down into the water, and that they're perfectly parallel, and people aren't sure. You know, they say, "Well, they must have been made by some ancient civilization as a road," that, and so on. Do you, what sort of geological explanation might there be for that?
2: Um, I'm not as familiar with those. Uh, there are so many geologic features that are kind of been given mysterious origins. It could be that there's a good explanation for those. I think that people enjoy the idea of putting their own stories to them. I mean, we've always done that. We've, we've given names to things that sort of resemble some feature, and we, we attach a legend to that, a geologic feature. We, we attach an interesting legend to that because that's the way we want to relate to the world. So, yeah, people do that. They they'd like to think that the devil cleaved this rock in half or or... <laughs> this area was cursed and the witch left her mark or uh, there's great stories about every place that has like a devil name to it and i think it's just natural for us to try to relate to our environment like that
3: not too long ago i seem to recall uh, an article going around on the internet about a pyramid that was discovered in antarctica Had, had you run across that article
2: uh, again, vaguely remember that I, I go through an awful lot of news every day. But sometimes uh, formations can sort of look like that. They look very odd from a, a certain angle, and when we tend to fo- look for patterns, and we think that those patterns are man-made, and sometimes nature makes her own patterns.
3: Exactly, that's what it turned out to be was a mountain peak that was sticking up out of the ice that was right. very pyramid in like in shape. <laughs> What other sort of geological formations can you think of that that people might confuse with something paranormal?
2: Uh, One of the great examples are um, what's called uh, hexagonal uh, jointing. So there's this columnar jointing that's created when volcanic rock erupts into the crust and cools there and cools rather slowly. So it forms these cracks, sort of like mud cracks, but in this big column of uh, magma that's cooled underground and then all the rock around it sort of um is softer and it goes away and then you have something remains like devil's tower it's it looks oh, amazing right. yeah, sure it it just is incredible this looks like the the, the the native legend is about a giant bear that scratched the sides with his claws as he was trying to get up uh, the mountain to reach these children and, and the gods r- raised the mountain and the bear couldn't get up. And so the bear claws are the the, the grooves on the side. But really, we know what kind of rock, uh, what kind of magma it was and, and how it cooled and how it was formed that way. But it's still spectacular. I mean, it just looks like it was created by the gods. And also, there are places like Giant's Causeway that are the same phenomenon.
1: We've got more phenomenon and more phenomena. And all sorts of things like that with Sharon A. Hill, Gene Steinberg without the middle name, as I mentioned before, Jay Randall Murphy. You're in the
3: ParaCast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNLive.com today.
1: We also have swag. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great t-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special. In multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Powercast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop
23: by, and take a shopping tour. It's been said.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: I would be remiss in my duty as host of the Paracast, not to mention the Paracast Plus Just the other day, somebody on YouTube said, oh, my God, they have commercials every two minutes. Well, we don't. But, you know, maybe you don't like the ads. Of course, there are ways to get around it. If you don't like the ads, you can fast forward or subscribe to PowerCast+. Go to plus.thepowercast.com. We offer a version of the show with better quality audio, higher bit rate, sometimes extra special things thrown in. Without the network ads, we also give you the After the Paracast podcast. More stuff coming, and you never know what's going to happen with the After the Paracast podcast, because in the past two weeks, we simply continued the interview on them. In fact, Sharon will return on After the Paracast this week to continue our show. Plus, Plus.theparacast.com. Prices start at just $1.49 per week. Our price cheap remember who said that our price cheap Sharon you've studied folklore and stuff obviously with UFOs do you remember who said that as their motto
2: no I don't
3: mad magazine (laughs) yeah geological formations can be really interesting we get uh, a lot of things like the face on Mars would be another one we get looking at fuzzy images from far away and our mind wants to turn them into something that we recognize.
2: Yeah, there's this this great location in Pasadena where um, it's called the Devil's Gate, where it looks like the face of the devil is in the profile of the rock. And there's places where it, the, the the cliff sides look like faces or or various things. So we, we want to see patterns in nature, like we talked about, and uh, oftentimes we make them into interesting faces as well.
3: My dad was a geologist. So I find some of this quite fascinating. And one of the things he explained to me about one of the claims von Daniken was making and was that through a process that was similar to what you described, where there was a softer material that eventually eroded away uh, from, in this case, within a harder material, uh, let, leaving these smooth cavernous sort of rounded shapes inside these very very large stone blocks. Well, Von Daniken was talking about this as being like a, a launch pad for rocket vehicles, and, that's, and that these uh, ca- these depressions and, and in the rock were caused by the engines blasting off of the rocket. And my dad just looked at it and went, "No, this is exactly what it was about here. This is how that happens." So, getting back to the the cart track thing one of the things he suggested it might be and you might be able to comment on this is that during the ice age these miles thick layers of ice would drag things including giant boulders over the landscape and create these ruts in pieces of stone like that is that a conceivable sure
10: oh absolutely
2: we find these uh, glacial erratics miles away from where they originated because they were carried by a sea device. so it's well known, well known phenomenon.
3: So, getting back to the scientifical, then, how can we help people be less scientifical and more not necessarily scientific? Because if if people go out of being scientifical and want to be science scientists, then they actually have to go and learn science. Sure. But is there any way that the average person who's not a scientist can avoid? the traps of say the quantum woo <laughs> that type of thing what
2: absolutely. can we do absolutely well it's not going to be easy and i've gone through this with just a couple paranormal groups who have volunteered to let me ask some questions and what i do is i give them some of these questions to take back to their groups and have this discussion and it's it's sort of a bit of a, a, a soul searching for them they have to think really about what their goals are and what they're trying to do what are their missions and goals and what what can they actually do that's that's meaningful and one of the things i really tried to to point out in the book is that i think and this this is, this is not going to be popular with my my skeptical friends is that i think that these groups have a very interesting and important purpose in society they exist because we need them people need someone to go to to talk about their experiences and someone who's not going to judge them and maybe can help them a bit. And most of these groups say they want to help people. Well, in order to help people, they don't have to be scientific. They can just sit there and listen. And I've done this with several people who just want to talk, who just want to be validated that they've had a bad experience and get it off their chest and and vent a little bit. So Realize that that's a good purpose for these groups, to be understanding, but not to invoke upon them some sort of conclusion, because maybe the people don't want the conclusion. Maybe they do. Maybe they want the ghost in their business or in their home, That because it sounds cool. But most people are just kind of nervous and scared about being in their house when they feel that something's going on, so you can reassure them. But you don't have to go in there with pieces of equipment and blinky lights and, and say, oh, yes, you got a ghost here. There's ghost energy. What good is that doing? I, I think it's more misleading than anything. So I think that they need to change their methods and give up this idea of equipment that doesn't work. Does this piece of equipment actually do anything for you? Maybe it measures environmental variables, but, but you have to interpret those variables. And how do you know what they mean? There's so many things going on outside and you don't know what could be influencing it. A car driving by could be influencing the, the result of your, your equipment or somebody with a cell phone. So I think that they should think about what kind of data they want to collect. If they just want to talk to the witnesses, if they want to collect some sort of uh, environmental data, they have to be very careful about it, be more careful about it, record carefully, not just your feelings. I feel sick in this room or something doesn't really do any good if you don't do anything with that or, or, or if it's not repeatable. So collect the data well, do something with that data, share it with other people have other groups go in independently and see if you can replicate those kinds of experiences or the data collecting learn some skepticism learn some critical thinking and don't be afraid to put your information out there and have somebody be be that the third party that takes a look at it independently and objectively and tells you well I think you're a little weak here I think this needs to be fixed or I need more information on that you have to accept criticism in order to improve
1: but at the end of the day are these researchers more of a sounding board, a place for people to tell their weird stories? Or is there an ultimate goal there of collecting all this data and then maybe finding some scientists? We do have scientists who do UFO research and other areas of paranormal research. But finding some real scientists who say, you know what, let's take a look at this stuff. Let's look at all this material. Let's look at this evidence and see if we really can go ahead and find evidence of something really weird going on
2: i think you totally can do that it starts with the good collection of data methodical collection um spending more than one night at at a location there are some paranormal groups right now that have gone to their local community colleges or universities and found a scientific advisor to help them figure out how to design experiments, how to collect data, and then they go back to a particular location over and over again, and they study the environment, and they collect better data, and they try to figure out, by running experiments, if there's something unique to this area, if there's something that they can identify that may be the cause of these experiences. This is the new way of doing things. They've, they've given up on these blinky light gadgets, and pretending to be taps and, and and going into people's houses because it hasn't panned out very well. So they're, they're looking at new approaches. And I've had at least one group contact me with regards to that. They want to be more scientific, but they need a guide. So they, they go and they ask for guidance from actual scientists. Now, admittedly, there, there may not be that many that would volunteer to do that, but there are some there are some that are interested in this, and it's sort of the whole citizen science movement. There are plenty of people out there willing to gather data, but yet that data feeds back to an individual who can maybe do something with it.
1: Now, when we look at the UFO field, for example, we trace the modern UFO field from 1947 when Kenneth Arnold had his sighting. Since then, we could probably find other sightings earlier than that, but that's where we trace the beginning. And I'll get into more of this after we do our break. With Sharon, Randall, and Gene. Yes, indeed, you're in. The
3: Paracast.
0: Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget.
23: Let's talk tough. Let's talk comfort. Let's talk about down home value. Made in the USA blue jeans, like you wore as a kid. Remember, there's a place down in Tennessee where they make blue diamond gusset
5: jeans. They so pride in every stitch. Guarantee you love the way they fit.
12: They put a diamond City in the crotch where you need it most. Blue Diamond Gusset's got it. Others
23: don't. For good old-fashioned comfort, get Diamond Gusset jeans. Every stitch guaranteed. and our Defender motorcycle jean comes Kevlar reinforced. See them at gusset.com. That's gusset.com. Or call 888-848-7738. That's 888-848-7738. Diamond Gusset jeans got it. Others don't.
4: Long distance travel or long hours in front of a computer can take its toll on your body.
16: Get relief for your neck or back pain when you search Amazon for Sunshine Pillows Heating Wraps and Pads often listed as an Amazon choice Why take another pill? Now, from Sunny Bay and by customer demand we introduce our Extra Long Neck Heating Wrap a complete wrap wide and hands-free and brings fast relief to those who suffer from neck or back pain.
9: You can easily find Sunshine Pillows on Amazon.
16: Or search Amazon for our new Sunny Bay Disposable Heat Pads. Or look for Sunny Bay Heated Neck Wraps for Relief from back pain to menstrual pain and cramps.
4: Sometimes life can be a pain in the neck or back or shoulder. See
16: why our company, Biomed DB Design, has a lifetime 100% positive rating on both Amazon and Etsy. Just go to Amazon.com and search Sunny Bay or call us 253-678-1361.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Yes, we have a fourth person participating. He's a little white furry thing, name of Teddy Bear. Most people know him. He's become famous on um, the power cast for he has a tenor bark anyway sharon hill joins us here and i was suggesting here of course and she agrees that scientists can take a look at the evidence especially for ufos and maybe find directions and find some meaning about them but we've had the modern ufo era beginning in 1947 we've had ufo groups come and go apra was gone NICAP is gone KUFOS is a shadow of its former self, partly because of the fact that Dr. J. Allen Hynek died a number of years back. We've got MUFON struggling to stay relevant and embracing more entertainment elements to do it. Now, with all this, all these years we've had the UFO field, is there ever going to be a point where, other than a few scientists, the scientific community will say, you got enough stuff here, let's go on.
2: Hmm. I don't know. Depends on what you got.
3: That's a really good answer. Actually, the I don't know impresses me more a lot of times than trying to come up with something. And it seems to me that I I see that happening on both sides of the fence. But when we get talking with people who are working in the paranormal and they come up with all sorts of theories as to what it might be because it fits what their belief system is rather than just saying, well, I don't know, then that starts to worry me a bit.
2: Yeah, and it should because, you know, people say skeptics are closed-minded. And and for many, many years, I I self-identified as a skeptic. To this day, people still identify me as a skeptic and they call me closed-minded. But I'm the one who says, I don't know. I'm not saying it's this. It's, you know, spirits of the dead or it's quantum entanglement or, or whatever the, the latest fad is uh, that they want to talk about and attribute these weird events. But I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until better evidence comes along. And meanwhile, I'm looking into all sorts of ideas and I'm still doing research. And I feel like I haven't even touched the beginning of all the things that I could check out and, and examine and think about and it's back to the old adage that you know if you know a little bit you know how much you don't know and I, that that's how i feel i feel like i there's so much i don't know yet so i'm definitely not going to park myself in one place and say it's definitely this because where do you go from there
3: have you ever had a paranormal experience yourself
2: you know people always ask me that and i i think it's it's a strange situation because i don't know if i would ever say it was a paranormal experience. I would say, I don't know what happened. Sure, there's there's been a couple minor things. There's like, I can't explain what just happened there. I don't know what that was all about. And I may never know because I never have enough information to figure it out. So I just well, let it go.
3: Well, give us an example.
2: Um, the latest example, I, I was recording a podcast I was doing a podcast called 15 Credibility Street. I'm not doing it anymore. But at the time I was doing it, I'm sitting here in my, my basement and I was talking to my co-host and all of a sudden there was, there was, it's a very open room and there's nothing around me. And all of a sudden at the back of my head, I heard just this big clap right behind my head. There's nothing behind me. There's nobody down here. The, the wood doesn't ever creak, doesn't ever make a noise like this. There was nothing outside. I have it recorded, you know, it made you cringe and the, the hair goes up on the back of your neck. It's like, what was that sound right behind my head? I have no idea what that was. To this day, I don't know what it was.
3: You got it on the recording, you said. Yeah. So Oh, okay. So that then we have definite, uh, we have sound pressure waves.
2: Yeah, it was weird.
3: So something had to move the air to cause the diaphragm to move in the microphone. So something was there. Yeah, And there's,
2: there's, been, there's been cases where when um, we first installed a fan in my daughter's room when she was little, and it was a remote control fan. And in the middle of the night, the fan and the light would be on full blast. And I said, why did you turn the light and the fan on? I didn't do it. And then one night, I was lying in bed and I saw the light go on. And I walked in there and she's sound asleep. She didn't do it. So something was interfering with the light. Now, Had I been paranormally inclined, I might have thought it was something spooky. I later did a couple of uh, tests. I noticed that there was problems with our TV remote control, our garage door opener. It apparently, our Wi-Fi in the house, apparently we have a lot of radio interference here. And I think that the radio interference triggered the remote control to turn the light on and the fan to high. Had I been more paranormally inclined, (laughs) I might have come to a different conclusion. But I kept looking for the right answer. I kept looking for like a better answer. So that's why I say, I don't know if I would ever say I had a paranormal experience unless it was really dramatic. And I think that those really dramatic things kind of only occur in, you know, Hollywood movies.
1: Of course, it's also true that somebody could have hacked your system and was playing games with it. A drive-by hacker, that's someone who drives by and they log into (laughs) Wi-Fi networks and such.
2: Yeah, yeah. I had a very weird situation with the Wi-Fi, and nobody could really explain why it was doing what it was doing, but it was definitely something was was interfering.
1: Well, Wi-Fi, I think, is still imperfect to some degree, even though right. they've got multiple standards. It's not consistent performance. You can't set your watch by it. Mm-hmm. It's going to vary because you have so many things going on about you. We are immersed in radio waves yeah remember wi-fi is multiple channels you've got the portaphones using a radio system you have the cell phones using multiple channels some people believe and we might even have a guest about that randall suggested a guest to me who has done research and says you know if you keep that cell phone on your ear too often you're going to fry your brain
2: Yeah, that's a popular belief. I think it's kind of a Luddite idea that we're scared of technology and technology is going to hurt us. Uh, There's been so many studies that show that that sort of radio wave is not, it doesn't ionize, it can't cause cancer, it can't mess with your cells, other than the fact that uh, it's distracting your attention all the time because you're you're stuck, your your, your ear is stuck to the phone, which is not a good thing. But... um, the, the idea of us being bathed in radio waves and, and electromagnetic frequency, I wish people would realize that more often because they're they're afraid of it, but it's part of nature. I mean, it, it happens in nature, and we've we've always been bathed in these things. The more technology we have, and we're actually living pretty long lives. Uh, it's, we're, we're living longer than ever, so I I don't think it's 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 a deadly thing to be worried about.
3: There's still some contradictory evidence to that that would suggest otherwise but that's probably for another show <coughs> on a re- <laughs> on a related issue though when one of the things that one of the ghost hunting groups was talking about recently on our show was that they discovered that there was a cell tower about uh, I think he says something like 18 feet on the other side of the wall of this person's room where they were experiencing this this uh, paranormal phenomena or having these paranormal experiences and they took in their EM meters that read the frequency and amplitude I'm assuming I, I don't know exactly how those work but they said that it was very high and they suggested that they move to another house and they did and the experiences went away we're mm. going to go away for a
1: few minutes right now with Sharon Gene and Randall you're in the Paracast Paracast
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com
22: today. Looking for that edge during those intimate moments? We see many ads for enhancement, but the side effects include death,
10: For USA Radio News, I'm Wendy King.
22: We had a good outcome, and I hope that next week we have a a process that people can be proud of.
10: Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Blake, after saying he wouldn't vote to confirm Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh unless he found out more about the sex assault accusations against him. The Judiciary Committee asked the White House to make it happen, and the president said yes. The president's decision to go ahead and order the FBI investigation made good on his promise to listen to Republican senators. He said in a statement, this update must be limited in scope and be completed in one week.
8: I would be happy to cooperate with the FBI,
10: yes. Democrats have repeatedly demanded an investigation. Ford says Kavanaugh attacked her when they were in high school. Kavanaugh says that never happened.
4: Every hiring manager knows that a company is only as good as the people it's made from. So where do you find the best people? That may surprise you.
0: Meet the grads of life. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs.
4: This is talent worth knowing about.
0: Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and grads gradsoflife.org.
12: because the LASIK Vision Institute is offering dramatically low prices and an absolutely free consultation. Just text 233 to 350350. The LASIK Vision Institute has already performed over a million procedures. They use the latest FDA-approved LASIK technology that helps the majority of patients achieve 2020 vision for a fraction of what others charge. Better vision, better value. The LASIK Vision Institute. Make this the year you finally get LASIK. For a free consultation plus an extra 20% discount, text 233 to 350350. You'll see for free if LASIK is right for you. That's DO33 to 350350.
2: Hey, this is Marie D. Jones, the author of This Book is From the Future, and you are listening to the Paracast, the Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: In the early days of my radio career, I would work at small and medium-sized stations where the transmitting tower was just, you know, 100 feet away, generating, what, 500 watts, 1,000 watts, 50,000 watts. I always wondered as I sat there in the studio if that was doing anything to me.
10: Hmm.
3: Maybe it did. That explains everything. Randall. Right. These same groups had uh, another situation where they they took their measuring meter in and discovered that there was a a device that was in the room that was using or causing a lot of this EM frequency pollution, for lack of a better term. And they suggested that they exchange it for another one that didn't do that. And then those people's uh, experiences went away. So are, are these just coincidence or is there really something to, I mean, we don't necessarily have to have ionizing radiation in order to influence what's happening within people's brains. I mean, Persinger proved that much.
2: Right. There was, there was one researcher, I, I'm pretty familiar with the idea that he, he studied this concept of this haunted bed in a, a room and it was in the uk i believe where people would report sleeping in this bed they would have these strange experiences these apparition like experiences feeling of, of people watching them and and very uncomfortable so he wondered if there was some sort of electromagnetic magnetic effect at play and what he found was that the bed frame was iron and in some instances i don't know if it was uh, certain atmospheric conditions or whatever the bed would generate a strange magnetic field, the bed frame, and it would interfere with people's sleep and their brain because the fields were fluctuating and they were it wasn't the strength of the field that was the problem. It was the 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 fluctuation of the field. The way it was it was it was not normal. It was it was sort of like messing with your brain because it was it was doing uh, it was it was acting up. The normal field was was not there. It was this abnormal field was was messing with your brain. And I think that that uh, it, that was a very unique situation. Uh, people sometimes report they have problems with uh, electronic alarm clocks next to their bed because they also emit these types of waves. Maybe that's interacting with something else, whereas one person might not notice it, another person might notice it because they're maybe a bit more sensitive to it. I think that's a possibility. Uh, In the beginning, I said that I think some people have different perceptions of the world. Maybe they have different sensory perceptions. Maybe that comes into play. Some people are just more sensitive to these environmental cues than others, and their brain uh, reacts to it.
1: I used to recall people living near a radio tower would receive the radio station which would play in their teeth i guess they had (laughs) metallic fillings or something like that
2: and they become a walking radio receiver wasn't that a gilligan's island episode
1: it was based on reality (laughs) in a rare occasion a tv sitcom might be very very loosely based on something that really
3: happens rare occasion (laughs) ripped from the headlines but then a lot of that's just sort of, you know, how much of it is urban myth and coincidence and, right. and and everything else? So determining what is and isn't. Now, one of the things we touched on was the idea of critical thinking. How do you define critical thinking for yourself?
2: Uh, people have struggled with trying to define that. And I don't really have a great explanation. What, what I do is I, I try to be objective about it. Just break it down. Look at the facts. Taking apart a claim into its uh, uh, elements, different pieces, and, and analyzing, does it make sense? So I think when you're talking about critical thinking about claims, you have to try to, to do that, to pick it apart and say, what, what are we really trying? What is the claim? Let's, let's get the claim established here. Let's get all the details. And let's think about alternative explanations that make sense. Or where are there problems with this? Or where do we need more information? It's very much just delving into the idea and, and picking it apart more so than maybe thinking analytically about it or, or mathematically about it or, or this, is, this is irrational, things like that. Uh, just trying to establish exactly what is being claimed, what is being said, and the meaning of each of those things. I don't think kids are taught it in school very well. And uh, I think it's it's harming our society today. We could see it every day of how we, we lack critical thinking skills because we just don't think about stuff anymore. We, we just open our mouths and let people feed us the the information.
3: And then those people turn around and feed that to someone else. And yeah. on and on it goes until all of a sudden we've got a belief system based on no foundation at all.
2: And fake news, yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Having some idea of what we're dealing with to begin with, then it is pretty important. It's stating your objectives, your purpose, mm-hmm. knowing what the question is, defining the problem, you know, getting together your your data, your facts, observations, and experiences, and coming to some sort of an a, a theory, loosely in terms like not a theorem or, or such but just saying well like, it could be this so at that point that's when it seems to cross paths with what you were saying earlier well if we're going to investigate something we need to have some idea of what we think it is we're looking for so say for example in the sciences if you're looking for let's just say something like a black hole we've got this idea of what it means and what it's about and that it could exist And therefore, let's go looking for it. So there's an example of, well, yes, we have a a preconceived idea of exactly what it is we're looking for. Now we need to find the evidence. So in that particular context, I don't really see a problem with having a preconceived idea about what it is you're looking for.
2: Right. Okay. So say somebody has a claim that they, they saw something, some creature in their backyard, some weird thing in their backyard. So the first thing you want to do, if you're going to approach this in a critical thinking way, in a rational way, you're going to try to establish what the claim is, exactly what they say they saw, uh, and then try to figure out if what, if anything, happened here. So first you have to start with, if anything, you know, are these people pulling your leg? Most of the time they're, they're, they had a real experience, they don't know what it was, get as much in, in, information as you can, and then go out and see for yourself if you can recreate it. If you could figure out what it could have been, uh, if there's circumstances that, that leave clues, you could find clues about what could have happened. But if they're, if they're adamant that it was a giant ape-like creature, it was the, the iconic Bigfoot, then what should we expect to find if there really was a biological Bigfoot? And this is a similar question that has been asked for decades If there really is a Bigfoot out there, we should be seeing remains, we should have fossil evidence, we should be seeing um, leftovers in the environment, uh, you know, scat, we should be seeing these creatures more often, we should be seeing them on trail cameras, we should find evidence of lots of things, and we're not finding those things. You're, You're trying to test your theory, but there's no evidence out there that really is supportive of that other than the idea that we would somebody says they saw a really big hairy man-like creature
1: well then are we saying that people are imagining this what might be causing it what could they mistake it
12: for
2: yeah that's probably unlimited the ideas that that possibly could be invoked to explain it and and maybe we just don't have enough information uh, one of the things in that skeptics know about and do is we're, we're very aware of how easy it is to fool ourselves and how our perceptions can be mistaken, how our memory is malleable and fallible that uh, when we recall things later on that they get um, changed. And uh, I really, if I could teach anything to young kids, it would probably be the idea that our memory is not like a videotape. And we shouldn't rely on uh, our memory as being infallible. And when people say, I know what I saw, I'm not sure you really do know what you saw. You're, you're interpreting what you saw, which is a completely different thing.
1: We've got more to come. And I'm going to ask a question about a current event that relates to memory recall, which most of you know about. With Sharon, Jean and Randall, you're in. The
3: Paracast.
8: For listening to GCN, visit GCNlive.com today.
1: As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap, but not all hosting is the same. DreamHost wins best of awards year after year. You get unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, and even the low-cost plans put your sites on high-performance SSDs. Want to know more about what DreamHost has to offer? Go to technightowl.com slash host. Once again, that's technightowl.com slash host
13: hi this is bryce abel i'm the producer of dark skies the co-author of ad after disclosure and you are listening to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio
1: all right this is going to be political very slightly i'm not going to make a judgment. so we have Right now, someone who's a clinical psychologist with a doctorate who claims to have had suffered from sexual abuse while she was 15 years old. She's in her early 50s now. She testified, as many of you know, before Congress. It was kind of interesting. Offer what happened to her and caused a lot of trauma and then analyze it as a clinical psychologist as to how the memory stores significant events like a sexual attack but maybe doesn't record other things around the event and as you say human memory can be altered the people who were asked about the roswell crash of a possible ufo they weren't confronted until 30 years later when they had lived many years with different cultural influences and they tried to get back there and figure out what really happened But isn't it also true at law school, they sometimes will stage accidents and then see if the people who are watching in the classroom look at these funny accidents and can really testify in court as to what happened. What are your observations about this, Sharon?
2: One of my uh, favorite researchers, a woman I really admire and I got to meet and I, I love her book, is Elizabeth Loftus. And she specializes in memory. And she did a lot of work on eyewitness testimony. And that's the name of the book that I have on my shelf that I consult repeatedly because I have people telling me that things happen to them. And, you know, if you go and you testify in court, you're an eyewitness, you're giving testimony, you should know uh, the limits of that testimony. And it's fascinating. My favorite experiment of hers that she did long ago, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is she created a false memory for people. She told them that when they went to to Disneyland uh, or Disney World as as youngsters, they saw Bugs Bunny there. Well, we all know that's impossible (laughs) because Bugs Bunny wouldn't appear, a Warner Brothers character wouldn't appear on a Disney location.
1: Of course, we have who, what was it, the Roger Rabbit thing?
2: Yeah, but this was before that.
1: Okay, that's where they actually had all the cartoon characters from different companies work together.
2: Yeah, this so it was completely impossible for Bugs Bunny to have appeared at Disneyland, but yet that's what the kids were led to remember, and they they were very adamant that that it had actually happened. When well, we know that what that was impossible, she was able to introduce false memory really, really easily in people in, in several experiments, and that's a danger. Uh, the current situation is tricky. I can't make any comment on it. I, I have very strong personal feelings about the way women have been treated in society. But I can't really make a judgment on her memory and how truthful it is. But she seemed to have been really cautious about it. You know, coming out in public like that and making that statement must have been extremely difficult for her to do.
1: Now, when it comes to so-called UFO abductions, and I think a similar thing would be people who claim to have past life memories where they undergo hypnotic regression. And you wonder here whether the hypnotist is leading them on in each case to fit within the narrative they're trying to sell or believe in.
2: This was really common during the time of the satanic panic when kids were accusing their parents and caregivers of of taking them into satanic orgies and seeing dead babies and things like that. And lives were ruined because children were misled. Well, they were now adults. You know, they were older children were misled to think that their fathers abused them when they were little. And those memories became so ingrained, it was as if they were real. But they clearly were an abuse of the power from the psychotherapists who led them, like you said, led them into that memory that was false.
3: One of the things we need to do, though, as skeptical people, is look at the flip side. In other words, what we're claiming here is that memory is so fallible that human beings are basically, you know, blithering... The idiots and can't re- figure out one thing from another, no matter how, how good or hard they try kind of thing. That That's sort of the, the extreme side of what skeptics will do sometimes. And yet when it's convenient for them, they'll say, well, no, humans are these ingenious creatures who have created all of these impressive technological marvels of the modern world and even primitive people were very smart and certainly could have built the pyramids themselves so there's this flip side that it seems to me that skeptics will flip from one extreme to the other depending on whatever suits them when it comes to memory if we're trying to be fair about it what we need to do is kind of look at the alternatives until fairly recently we didn't have a lot of alternatives that were any better than memory except for maybe carving something in stone certainly if you set it up to fool it you can do that so all of these experiments are taking place in situations that are set up to purposely fool the subject into believing something that didn't happen but when you really look at how accurate the mind and memory can be it's really amazing i'm 60 years old now and i can still remember the way to my original house and my original address when i was a child
2: yeah i think that we have these memories that are ingrained in our our brains forever because we were impressionable at the time i mean i still remember words to 70s am radio songs it's like i don't know how i know the words to this what why do i remember this and i can't remember you know the thing that happened to me just a little while ago
1: Yeah, but you might also be in a situation where there are still radio stations. There are still TV commercials and radio commercials playing the 60s, 70s, and 80s songs. Because, I don't know, they're adhering to a certain age category, a certain demographic, and they feel if they play a familiar song. She's a Rainbow (laughs) by the Rolling Stones is very, very common. Very commonly used here because of the fact that people will remember that. And then that catches their ear and they'll look at the commercial and you hope they'll buy the product. Yeah, you might remember the lyrics of the song, but it may not be because the last time you heard it was on 8 a.m. radio. Right, the TV commercials got it. I remember, for example, Windows 95. And Windows 95's only distinction, other than being the first version of Microsoft Windows that was even usable, is the fact that they use Start Me Up. If you read the lyrics to Start Me Up, You'd be absolutely shocked that they'd accept that. You make a grown man cry? Okay. Sharon Hill, please tell our listeners if they want to know more of the things you do, where do they go?
2: My website is SharonAhill.com, and that'll point you to all my social media sites and things like that and what I'm up to next. But I do blog there occasionally and uh, anything new that comes up and also a link to information on the book, Scientific Americans.
1: Do you have any other book projects in the wings?
2: Yeah, I have some ideas. I have to write them up. I've been approached by a publisher to do some some more paranormal-themed things, and I'm not sure what to do next, so I'm kind of thinking about it. Not sure.
1: Maybe we can encourage you or discourage you, depending on your point of view. Randall, tell our listeners, not quickly, but take a couple of seconds,
3: about your UFO organization and how they can get more information. It's Ufology Society International at ufopages.com. I'm upgrading the site there too. It's taking some time, but we should have it done by hopefully oh, the end of the fall, beginning of winter, something like that. Membership is free, no dues ever, and we try not to be scientifical.
1: <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right, let's have a round. No, no rounds of applause. Okay, that's the thing about web development, it always takes longer than you expect. Our friend Anders is still working on the final, final things, final tweaks for the new Paracast.com website. The Paracast.com, actually, Paracast.com points to it as well. And the new online store with all sorts of interesting branded merchandise that you'll love. The best we've ever done. New artwork and everything. You can also find us on Facebook. If you look for the two official Paracast fan clubs, we are the Paracast on Twitter. If you want to tweet to us, We also have the After the Paracast podcast, which can be an extension of this show or something altogether different. In fact, Sharon will return on After the Paracast this week to continue our show. And it's part of the Paracast Plus package, which includes the ad-free version of this show for network ads, all for prices beginning at $1.49 a week. For more information, check out plus.theparacast.com. That's plus.theparacast.com. We take major credit cards and PayPal now, but in the near future, we'll explore other ways of paying for the Paracast Plus. Sharon Hill, thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast this week.
2: Thank you for having me here.